Good morning. It was about 21 years ago on a Sunday just like this. I was living with my wife of two months in a duplex in Oklahoma City. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was watching the Dallas Cowboys play. Uh, yes, thank you for that. This is 20 years ago when they were winning games and being successful and <laughs> all was right with the world. I think they were playing the Seahawks. They were beating them 30 to 22. It's not important. I just wanted to point that out. In the middle of the game, Jessica came to me and she said, hey, will you turn that off? I want to talk to you about something. Yeah. And I thought there's not a more inconvenient time to have a conversation than when you're trying to watch the game. But you know when you're in that first uh, couple months of, of honeymoon phase and you're all lovey-dovey. And I said, sure, baby. And I stood up and I turned off the TV and she handed me a cart. I opened the cart and it said, congratulations, you're going to be a father. And I was like, how? <laughs> and then something happened. It's only happened once in my entire life. My knees gave out and I buckled backwards onto the couch and I sat there speechless. You remember that? It was I think it was just hard to believe that anything that good was real. Sometimes it's hard to believe that good is coming to you because you've been waiting so long for it. Or maybe sometimes uh, it's hard to believe that good is coming to you because you feel like you don't really deserve it. Or sometimes, sometimes you even get the good that you were hoping for and you just can't believe it. This Advent season, we're talking about an old-fashioned family Christmas. Now, not old-fashioned like the 1950s, old-fashioned like the first Christmas. A time when God said, I want to redeem the world, and the way I'm going to do it is by stepping into an ordinary, small, Middle Eastern family. I'm still thinking about, Jonathan, about your sermon last week. It's so powerful what you did about how none of us get to choose the family we're born into. But Jesus did get to choose the family of who he's born to. So who he chose all of a sudden becomes supremely interesting. And when you start to begin to look at the kind of people he chose to be his relatives, to be his ancestry, well, what does that mean for us? Because if you and I are in Christ, then this story, this old-fashioned Christmas story, is not just a story of a family, it's a story of our family. And one thing that I think is very hard to believe is what God is ultimately trying to do with his family. We just finished my favorite holiday of the year, Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. But it is a lot of work to get everybody to the table, right? Bus tickets, flight changes, missed flights, turning couches into beds, lost luggages, driving to Denver, driving back to Denver, cleaning the house, coordinating the menu, making the perfect dish, realizing it's ruined, remaking the perfect dish. It's a lot of work to get everyone to the table, right? But when you sit down and you look around, all that effort is worth it when the family's back together. God's goal in history is to put his family back together around a table. That's what he's working towards. He's working to restore what we broke so long ago. And when you look around our world today, that might be really hard to believe. I love uh, 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 O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I love that line that all about, about all the sad divisions. We're praying for him to bring it back together. That's what he's doing. 
but it's hard to believe. And if that's how you feel, if you find that statement hard to believe, you're in good company, because as we're going to see today, even a close member of Jesus' family that first Christmas found it hard to believe. And maybe in looking at his story, we might find our own, and today we might leave believing something that's too good to be true. Now, his story of who we're going to look at today is found in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Would you please find that, turn there, Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament, so that, that third gospel there. And while you're getting to that, let me give you some context to what's happening. Uh, the context of what's going to be happening in first, uh, uh, the first chapter of Luke uh, actually begins in the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, we have the last communication that God is going to have with his people for generations. Here are these last words. The last thing they hear before God goes dark are these words. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all you Israel, and see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And then God stops talking. So we have two things here. We are to remember the law. They are to remember the law of the servant Moses, and they are to wait for the prophet Elijah. That's it. Be faithful and wait. Be faithful and wait. Be faithful and wait. For 10 years, and 20 years, and 100 years, and 200 years, 300 years. 400 years, years where God's family was conquered by this Roman Empire, and they were oppressed, and there was no sign of relief in sight. And I have to wonder, at what point did people begin to think, he's not ever coming back? At what point did they begin to think, he's forgotten us? Enter Zechariah part of the old-fashioned family of Jesus Christ, a cousin of Jesus, who was a priest in Israel. He probably felt forgotten too while he was being faithful and waiting. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, here's his story. In the time when Herod was king of Judea, there was a priest called Zechariah of the priestly division of Abjah. His wife, who came from the Aaron family, was called Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous in God's sight. They followed all the Lord's commandments and ordinances without fault. They had no children. Elizabeth was barren, and both of them were of advanced age. Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithful and waiting, but unfruitful. Now, in this culture, there was, there was shame attached to not having children. So the family's lineage would come to an end. The family's property uh, would, would just be dispersed among strangers. The family's name would fade away and become forgotten. And Luke tells us that they were of an advanced age. In other words, what? They were old. They were too old. Their hope has gone. They've resigned themselves to childlessness. They probably felt that well, God's forgotten. That must have particularly stung for Zechariah. He's a priest. He's one of 18,000 priests in Israel. 
These priests would rotate service. You see, you were a priest serving out in some district somewhere, but, but once a year for two weeks, you and your division of priests got called up to the big leagues. You got called up to the, the temple. You got to rotate and you do service there for two weeks. And as Luke points out, it just so happens that in these, uh, the division of uh, Zechariah is on duty in Jerusalem. It had to be hard though. Both of them were righteous. God, we're doing what you said. We're being faithful. We're waiting. And you're not coming through. It so happened, verse 8, when Zechariah was performing his priestly service before God, according to the order of his division, that the lot fell to him, according to the priestly custom, to go into the Lord's sanctuary to offer incense. And the people were praying outside in a large crowd at the time of this incense offering. Now, Zechariah is getting to do something pretty amazing here. He's getting to go inside into this holy place in the sanctuary where very few people ever got to go. And he was going to go light the candle. This candle was, was a symbolic act of, of letting this prayer, the smoke and the incense, it would rise up to God. And it was a way they would light this candle and they would pray for the salvation of people. We have, in our sanctuary here, we've got over here on this side, there's a, uh, as part of our response table, there are some candles that you can light. There's some over here as well. And we encourage people at any point in this service, at any time, you go over there and you can light a candle. I, I enjoy doing that. I, I like to light it. I'm, I stand there for a moment I, and I, I let my prayer go and I just smell that incense rising up like it's going up to God. The thing is, anyone here in this room could do that. But back then, this was a big deal. See, there were, there were 18,000 priests that had to rotate through. A priest might only light this candle once in their entire life. And you know what? Most priests never got to go in here and light the candle. So they would cast lots. And so they, I don't know how they did it, but they just put a bunch of names in a hat. They pulled out Zechariah. Zechariah, you get to go do it. So it's a routine day for an old priest serving in the temple. And all of a sudden, this day got significant. Zechariah was about to reach the climax of his career. He was going to go into the holy place, yards away from the presence of God. He was going to light the incense and intercede for God's people. And then his day went from significant to supernatural. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the incense altar. Zechariah was troubled. He was terror-struck when he saw the angel. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. This will bring you joy. It will bring you celebration. Many will rejoice at his birth. He'll be a great man in God's sight. He will drink no wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to children and of unbelievers to the wisdom of the righteous. He will get ready for the Lord a prepared people. Now, if you've been here this fall, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and if you've been walking through the book of Mark with us, you know who John's going to grow up to be, right? Who? John the Baptist, John the Immerser, John, their baby boy, is going to be the greatest prophet of all time, getting the greatest honor to be able to point to his cousin and go, that's the Messiah. Behold the Lamb. Their baby John is going to bring restoration of families. He's going to turn hearts back to God. They're going to get ready for the Lord, a prepared people. That had to be hard to believe. And it turns out it was hard for Zechariah to believe. Look what he says. How can I be sure of this, said Zechariah to the angel. 
I like Eugene Peterson's uh, uh, version of the Bible, The Message, and in that he translates this, do you expect me to believe this? He couldn't conceive of how his wife could conceive. I worked a really long time on that line, and I don't feel like it landed with, uh, that was a really good line, that was clever, right? See, John, he, he couldn't conceive, and she couldn't conceive, and thank you. That's what we're working on, that. thank you. Listen to what he says, I'm an old man, and my wife's not as young as she used to be either. That's also a good line, right? That's a wise guy. I'm old, but my wife's just not as young. <laughs> Look here, replied the angel, I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. I was sent to speak to you and give you this splendid news. I know this is hard to believe for Zechariah. I also just suspect Zechariah resonates a little bit with me. I suspect there's a little bit of control happening with a guy like Zechariah. He can't see how. I got to see how. I need to, I need to know how. Go back to what the angel first said to him, though. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And I've been thinking about that. What prayer has been heard? What prayer is the angel talking to? Zechariah was supposed to be in this room with the incense, praying for the salvation of people. Maybe on that moment while he had God on the line, maybe he offered up another kind of Hail Mary pass of, uh, Lord, could I, could I still have a son? Or maybe he had stopped praying for a child years and years ago, but those prayers he had prayed were still echoing in the ears of God. Or maybe the prayer he was praying was the prayer he was supposed to be praying. He's praying for the salvation of all people, and he just didn't understand that it was about to get answered through his own family. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Zechariah couldn't dream that his prayer for a son and his prayer for God's salvation of all people would be linked together, that his son would turn people's hearts back to God and pave the way for Jesus to offer salvation to the world. And now the last words of God back in Malachi make sense. John is the Elijah that they've been waiting for. But it's hard to believe that something this good can be real. Zechariah is getting what he asked for, what he hoped for, and more, and yet he still doesn't believe it even when an angel tells him right to his face. He needs proof. He needs a sign. He needs something that shows this is really true. Is God really remembering us? Is God really reaching back out? Is God really speaking again? Does God really care about me? So Gabriel does give Zechariah a sign. He strikes him speechless until his son is born. He loses the ability to voice words. Now listen, you will be silent. You won't be able to speak until the day when it all happens because you didn't believe my words. But they will come true at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were surprised. He's taking such a long time in the sanctuary. I mean, how long does it take to go in and light the candle and pray? But when he came out, they couldn't, he couldn't speak to them, and they understood that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. How did they understand that? I don't know. He made gestures to them. He remained speechless. So when the days of his priestly service were, were complete, he went back home. After that time, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived. She stayed in hiding or rested for five months. This is the Lord's doing, she said, at last. 
He's looked on me. He's taken away my public shame. Now, this is an amazing thing that happened to an ordinary family that happened to our family, right? What could God be saying to us through this angelic encounter? Of course, we know in the grander narrative of Advent, this is a reminder that God has not forgotten us, that he will send the Messiah right back on time. This is why we practice Advent. We try to put ourselves back in the same mindset of those people who had been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah because we are still now waiting and waiting and waiting for the return. But on a personal level, I think this message is the same as Gabriel's first statements to Zechariah. It's the good news he was to bring. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. See, the word, uh, the name Zechariah was a very common name in this time. You know, lots of people were named Zechariah. It was a good family name, passed around. But you know that when you read the Bible, that people's names mean, mean things. And even though Zechariah was a common Hebrew name, it had a very special meaning. The name Zechariah means God has remembered. So literally what the angel is declaring is, do not be afraid, God has remembered Your prayer has been heard. Now, this was good news. Zechariah is no longer forgotten. Elizabeth is no longer forgotten. God's family is no longer forgotten. The Messiah is coming, and your son is going to be the Elijah that will pave the way because God is getting the family back together. So here's what I'd like to offer you this morning. Maybe you have been faithful and waiting, and faithful, and waiting, and faithful, and waiting. And maybe you started wondering if God has forgotten you. Maybe he hasn't remembered your prayers, or your situation, or your longings. If this is where you are, may you believe that God sent this message of good news to you, not just Zechariah. God hadn't forgotten about Zechariah's family or overlooked him, and today God has still not forgotten about his family, and he has not overlooked you. I don't know what the last year has been like for many of us, but for me it's been a test of my hope. I've been waiting on God to do some things that I've asked him to do, and he hasn't delivered yet. When that happens, I'm tempted to try to make things happen on my own. Well, I'll just do it then. Do it without him. Or I'm tempted to believe, you know, maybe I just don't matter that much to him. Or then I'm tempted sometimes to feel guilty when I look around at other people in God's family and I think, gosh, they have it so much worse than me. What What am I whining about? But what I'm really learning is how much I relish control. Raise your hands if you relish control. Ah, see what I just did? That was fun for me to ask you to raise your hands, and you all raised your hands. I believe relishing control is connected to the illusion that we can control things, and when those things aren't controlled like we want, that illusion shatters, and shattered illusions hurt. But I'm also learning something that I think Zechariah learned, and it's captured in a statement by Richard Rohr who said the virtues of the first half of life are about self-control and the second half about giving up control. 
Giving up control is an inevitable, inevitable and painful process. For Zechariah, it meant giving up control of his own voice to learn this lesson. He's realizing this moment, I can't control the birth of my own son, let alone the birth of the Messiah. But how do you learn how to give up control without just giving up? I think you find yourself in the larger family drama of God. You and I are supremely important to God's family, and at the same time, we're not that important. God's going to get done what God's going to get done. We're not the ones responsible for what God's doing. We're not the ones responsible to get God's family back together, but we do get to play a part. And this is how a Zechariah comes to see, I can't control if we get pregnant. I can't control when the Messiah arrives, but what I can do is play my part. I walk in here. I light the candle. I pray. And so what's helping me now is a simple prayer. God, what is my part in this today? What's my part in this today? What's my part in this conversation? What's my part in this interaction? What's my part in this decision? What's the part that I'm going to play in this person's life today, this person that, that you're responsible for, God? What's my part I'm going to play in their life What's my part in what God is doing, not how can I control this? Do you see the difference between those two? Usually when I ask God, what is my part, there's some kind of response like this. Well, it's more than nothing, and it's less than everything. What's my part? And just like Zechariah couldn't dream that his prayer for a family and his prayer for God's family would be linked together, you and I just don't know what prayers and parts that we play, how they are linked together with what God is doing to bring the family back together. You just don't know. So you play your part. So we try to be faithful. We try to wait. And we ask God daily, what is my part? And we remember that we are not forgotten. And sometimes that's enough. Enough to hope that what is too good to be true is real. And so even if you don't feel like that's true this morning, and that's okay if you're not there, I'd like to invite you, though, to ask God for the faith to believe that he remembers you. That you would accept that what the angel said to Zechariah is what God is saying to you today as well. Do not be afraid. God has remembered. Your prayer has been heard. This is what we get when we have an old-fashioned family Christmas. Because God could have accomplished the rescue of the world in a billion other ways, but he said, I'm going to do it by breaking into the routine of an ordinary family. How does God want to break into your routine this Christmas? Does he want to connect with you or, or maybe even really reconnect with you, even though you and he haven't talked for like 400 years is there a prayer that you've hidden deep in your heart because you think God has forgotten it? Or maybe you stopped praying it because you forgot it. I'd like to invite you to consider this question. What prayer is deep in my heart that God wants me to bring to him? Prayer is risky. 
Because sometimes when you've prayed for a long time and it hasn't happened, you're like, I'm, I, I don't want to go down that road of hope again. I don't want to open that door. But this morning, would you? There are many ways that you could answer this today. You might uh, begin to think about this after I pray in just a moment. You might begin to, just to, to, to pray this where you are. You might want to go over and have a Zechariah moment. You might want to go light a candle and let that incense rise up to God. You might want to write out something in our prayer wall and say, this is, this is my prayer. Those trees of remembrance might be a place where you would go and say, there is someone that I'm grieving the loss of this year, and I'm going to write their name on an ornament, and I'm going to put it on this tree so that they are not forgotten and so that I'm reminded that I'm not forgotten. What prayer is deep in your heart? God says, I want, bring it to me again. Let's pray. God, we confess that you seem so slow. By faith, we are trying to believe that you are right on time. We are opening a door in our heart that has been closed for a while and we're welcoming you to step into that by faith we believe that you care that we don't have to be afraid that you have not forgotten and that you hear our prayer